Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Nothing good will come of any message that hasn't got the Holy Spirit behind or God behind it. So let's just pray first, huh? Our Heavenly Father, I just pray that the words you've given me might come to our people and they might understand, they might know what you have for them today and that it might be clear in everyone's minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I was going through my sermon this morning and uh, I looked out and I thought, that's a theological lecture, not a sermon. And uh, I don't... I know what I'd feel like if I was you and someone was going to do that at church, so I thought I'll make that just a little bit different. <clears throat> Back in 2022, Christian Farmers Conference, our main speaker was uh, ex-Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. John is always a great speaker, great to listen to, and it was a record kind of camp because we had nearly 70 people there on on the Saturday, the most we've ever had up at Ridgecrest. And, uh, <clears throat> but I remember one illustration John gave during his talk to us, to his three talks actually, uh, was that uh, he and his daughter had been talking together and uh, at any rate they were thinking about all the things that John had done in his life. He'd, uh, he'd, entertained, he'd entertained kings, queens and presidents, prime ministers across the world, visited palaces, houses of parliament across the world, spoken at meetings right across the world, assumed leadership of Australia during 9-11 when John Howard was actually in America and he, for a short while, became our prime minister. And all the security arrangements that had to go into place really quickly when that happened because they weren't too sure when the terrorists where the terrorists were going to strike next. And so these uh, different things were mentioned between them. And they looked at each other and John said, and I hope for John's sake I've got this right, but he said, when I eventually stand before Jesus, all these things will 
mean absolutely nothing. And I thought, well, there's the stature of a man who knows what he's on about. You see, what John has said is part of a problem that a lot of us Christians have. I know I've had it. And that is, on the one hand, we talk about we are saved by grace through faith. On the other hand, we are told that faith without works is dead. So today, we're going to have a little talk about all that. And I want to start now considering what John has said in uh, James. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. And this addresses the business of uh, faith and works. And James, incidentally, was the brother of Jesus, so he should have known what he was talking about. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Supposing a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well and fed, but it does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, there you go. So, do you have faith? Is it accompanied by action? Seems like James thinks that should be. Now, <clears throat> there's a question comes from this, and I uh, shouldn't have shut the Bible there, but about Abraham. You see, Abraham was said to be he believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Now, this uh, all began when Abraham and, and Sarah were, were about, around about the 100 years old and God had said to him, look up in the, into the stars, Abraham, because your descendants are going to be numbered, something like that. And Abraham shook his head and, and so Sarah actually laughed, the Bible says, at one point about this. And they thought there was no chance that they were going to have children. But Abraham believed God, believed him when he said that he would. And it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's a remarkable thing. Um, when uh, Greg spoke to us last, um, on that day, we actually sang a, one of City of Lights songs, uh, the City of Lights, the band that uh, attached to Castle Hill Anglican Church in Sydney, actually. Now, City of Light are very good at writing songs that are biblical, I believe, and uh, their music is pretty good too. The sample of the words from that song we sang that day is, you deserve the greater glory, overcome I lift my voice to the king in need of nothing. Empty-handed, I rejoice. The next verse, you deserve the greater glory. It's actually the, it might be the chorus. Overcome with joy I sing, but by your love I am accepted. You're a good and gracious king. What's this about the king in need of nothing? Comes back to this business of, is it grace and faith or is it works? When we're saying that the king doesn't need those things. What he needs is our, our belief and our trust in him. From here, I think we might go to Romans chapters 3 and 4 because they say quite a bit about this. And Romans 4, 1 to 8 is really worth checking out. 
What shall we say then? And this is Abraham, of course, about Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work or doesn't do works, but trusts in God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's pretty significant words, isn't it? Blessed is the person, man or woman, whose sin will not be counted against them. So where does that leave us? Well, when did Abraham appropriate this righteousness anyway? I mean, in those days, the Jews were insisting that you had to be circumcised, and, and that was a form of righteousness. But it's interesting that Abraham believed God, was recognised under him as righteousness before he was ever circumcised. But also, for, for the Jewish law, Abraham was also circumcised. So here is a man who is righteous before God simply by believing what his God has promised. He thought it would be impossible for he had, and Sarah were a hundred or so, you know, in age. Now, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <clears throat> Righteousness comes through that faith to all who believe, and there is no difference, for all have sinned. We are either sinners or we are not. In human terms, it's hard to come to terms with. We are used to degrees in all kinds of things, aren't we, in our, in our human lives. To us, the law, and there are degrees of offence, and the law says there are degrees of punishment according to our law. But with God, when it comes to sin, he said there are no degrees of sin. You are either a sinner or you're not. <clears throat> and I was reminded when I heard this, and I, I read again last night, out of the internet uh, of a chaplain by the name of Henry Gorecki, who was asked after the Second World War, would he go and meet with the Hitler's SS men in jail? And he thought, this is impossible. These men will never listen to me. They're hardened. They're everything, everything you could negative that you can think of. They are responsible for the deaths of millions of people. And they're about to go into the Nuremberg trials at the time. But eventually Henry and another Catholic pastor decided that they would go in and talk with these men. Interestingly, they split them, Protestants and Catholics, and there was a whole lot more Protestants than Catholics amongst them nominally. And Henry was surprised at the reception he got because it wasn't was not really all that negative and uh, <clears throat> towards the end this his article is entitled i walked to the gallows with nasty chiefs and you wouldn't believe it 
well, you would if you know our Lord. But well over half of those SS men gave their hearts to the Lord before they went to the gallows. Now, and you might say, and there are a lot of people in our world who would say, and I don't blame them for thinking this way, from a human point of view, what those men did was unforgivable. But you see, in God's eyes, dare I say, if they truly repent, and Henry Grecky reckoned they did, and he said, I know when a man is sincere and when he isn't. And he said, I believe that the men, these men did, big majority of them did repent of what they did. Now you could say, God, God shouldn't be forgiving them. Well, let's think about Jesus on the cross for a moment. He's the son of God, the innocent son of God, the only son of God, on the cross, crucified. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. If Jesus Christ can forgive his murderers when he is innocent, then there is no excuse for any Christian not to forgive. And I'm not saying that's easy. There will be situations and there will be people we will meet that will find that really difficult. I acknowledge that. But nonetheless, God insists that we must forgive if we want to be forgiven ourselves. However, and our God and his heaven are of such perfection that nothing, absolutely nothing, not the slightest bit of impure imperfection is acceptable. This explains why our works can never save us. A few regular nice words, a few regular nice actions will not help us when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. And uh, certainly money given no matter what to, church or charities, will not save us. These are his rules, and he has a right to make them. So you might say, well, how can anybody measure up to God's standards? The simple answer is we can't. How about that? We can't ourselves. But if, like Abraham, we believe and we truly believe, it will be reckoned unto us as righteousness, and it's that righteousness and that uh, <clears throat> understanding and that uh, relationship, that's the word I'm looking for, relationship with God, that really matters. The relationship, the acknowledgement of our sin and the righteousness that comes through belief and honouring the one who created us in the first place. So Galatians 3, 1 to 5, is very helpful in a lot of this. Um, again, talking about this kind of thing, um, Paul writes, um, <clears throat> You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by observing or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles amongst you because you observed the law or because you believe in what you heard? And, of course, it's not from observing the law, is it? 
So I must say a verse that I always love is Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. If you know the Lord as you should, there is no condemnation. You have nothing to fear and you have everything to live for now and in eternity. The righteousness of our Saviour is appropriated to us through our faith in him, much the same as Abraham. So we of the human race have a huge problem. What is the answer to this problem? The faith and work or works, you know, which which is it? Faith without works is dead, but at the same time obeying the law and doing good works will not save us, despite what it sounds like we are not at an impasse. Now, I happen to be a fan of Martin Luther King Jr. and what things that he said. And one thing he said was, <clears throat> faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's what faith is like. Works are motivated by our gratitude for the grace we have received through faith and that we have expressed in Jesus. Grace, as a definition, is the unmerited favour of God giving, given to you and me without cost. But as some wise person has said, <laughs> salvation costs us nothing, but living for Jesus might cost us everything. And that's what we have to uh, remember. And Keith's reminded us this morning of the the, the um, sacrifices that our missionaries have made and uh, that it was a cost for them. Again, Martin Luther King says, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase, just take the first step. Thankfully, our creator is only too aware of our situation and our problem. The one we have after his perfect creation ended up in sin he knew that he had the only solution. Now, Caiaphas, the priest, during the time of Jesus' trial, said something prophetic and he didn't even realise he said it. And you probably remember it. <clears throat> he told the Jews, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is the expedient for one man to die for the sins of the people rather than for the whole nation to perish. I personally believe that the time is coming and it's not far away when we Christians may have to draw the line in the sand, as it were, and say we will obey God rather than men, as Jesus and his disciples had to. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. It happened to them too. The world has become very intolerant of Christians and their faith and their beliefs, even though the world preaches tolerance loud and long. It's a different sort of tolerance, though. As long as we tolerate what they say is okay and as long as we practice their radical views, we will be accepted. But we'll be an anathema if we oppose them and that could well happen. <clears throat> there is nothing new under the sun, as I said. And these laws and expectations were rife when Jesus and his disciples were witnessing to the truth. The disciples were jailed many times for preaching, most of them died a martyr's death. Crucified, 
stone or killed with a sword. They were motivated by their saviour as they were his servants who were grounded in the truth of his word. However, it was their relationship with Jesus which was the determining factor and their sacrificial work was the result of his promises and grace to them. Those same promises and grace are also ours if we have faith in our creator and for everything that we are motivated to attempt for him. And I pray that uh, we will honour him and I pray that we will trust him for all those things. Now, just one final comment on the last song we're going to sing. It's one that Jeff Bullock wrote. It's called The Mercy of God. I was reading uh, Ephesians chapter 1 the other day and lo and behold, most of the words of that song came straight out of Ephesians 1. Helen is going to come and read us uh, that little bit of Ephesians. Thanks, Helen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, in the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. In him we were also chosen, having pre been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were thanked, marked, I'm sorry, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory.